know when I'm ready, Cheryl. Okay, so I'm going to just take maybe 20 minutes, 30 at the most, to kind of go through um, how can we trust our Bible? Is the Word of God reliable today? You know, it's no secret that the Word of God has always been under severe attack. And I want to give you some encouragement and show you some archaeological things to kind of encourage you. So a couple, just a couple points uh, that I'm going to try to get through here. Grab my glasses. So, basically, in this church, we believe the Bible does not just contain the Word of God, but it is the very living Word of God. Um, ancient sources have been discovered, studied, analyzed. A couple other things. The scribes wrote one letter at a time, and then they took a bath every after every letter in the Hebrew text. So we know they copied it carefully. There's over some 25, maybe 30,000 ancient manuscripts of the Old and New Testament that are still in existence today. And in fact, over three-fourths of them are translated into other languages. The beautiful part about it is we can compare all of them and get an accurate understanding. And this is another important point. Nothing to this date in ancient literature even comes close to the amount of manuscripts that we have for our scriptures. Nothing comes remotely close. To date, we have some 5,800 Greek manuscripts going back to the second century um, and I'm going to just go through these slides right up here so we have the, the New Testament here we have this is called the P90 or Papyrus 90 what you're seeing up here is a small fragment of papyrus that actually contains portions of the Gospel of John right around John 18 verse 36 through 19 verse 7 well both sides of this in Greek <coughs> It has been dated to the 2nd century A.D. That's 200 years after the date of Christ, death, of resurrection, burial of Christ. The text is part of a papyri or a group of manuscripts that were discovered in ancient Egypt in a garbage dump. Interesting. Dating back to 200 years. Next one. The next one is the P98. <coughs> And it's a manuscript fragment that contains verses from the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Copy church in A.D. 100. Dated back to 100 years after the death of Christ. And as I people in our church know, John was alive on the island of Patmos back in A.D. 90. So he was alive pretty much, safe to say, when this document was copied. So we have that manuscript. So we got one 200 years after the death, Christ, one dating back to 100 years after death. <clears throat> Here's another one. This is the earliest and most famous Greek New Testament manuscript. It's called the Ryland Papyrus, or the P52. This is on display in John Ryland's University in Manchester, United Kingdom. This also dates back to A.D. 100. Think about that. A.D. 100. No other manuscripts even come close. Next one. This is called the Chester Beatty, named after Chester Beatty, who found it. It's an early New Testament manuscript, which is part of his papyri. This is dated back to the 3rd century, 
oh, okay, you have it up there, contains Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's housed in the library in Dublin, Ireland, except for one leaf containing Matthew 25, which is in Vienna. So what, is, what does this tell us? The New Testament has been preserved with more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature, with over 1,500 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, by the way, 9,300 manuscripts in various other languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, and Armenian. And then another slide. This is the cave in Qumran. By the way, <coughs> this is the cave where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. But there are many caves along there where many other scrolls have been found. Many other scrolls. So, and then uh, you can put up the next one, Cheryl. One of the most respected Old Testament scholars, whose name was Gleason Archer, examined the two Isaiah scrolls found in Cave 1, which is what you just saw. Even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in the Qumran Cave, uh, Cave 1 near the Dead Sea in 1937, were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscripts previously known in AD 980. They proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible. The 5% of variation consisted chiefly of slips of the pen. One of the most important Dead Sea documents is those scrolls. That scroll that you saw there. 24 feet long, well-preserved, dated back to 100 B.C., contains one of the clearest, most detailed prophecies of the Messiah in chapter 53 called the Suffering Servant. Um, a couple of things to think about. The Suffering Servant is called the Sinless Servant in Isaiah 53.9. He dies, rises from the dead. These are prophecies. I'm not going to go through all that. But let me go to the text. So I wanted to give you those pictures to show you that you could trust your Bible. If you take all the 30,000 manuscripts, the 5,800 Greek manuscripts, think about it. These people didn't, most of them know each other. Here's the thing that's beautiful. They all say the same thing. People that never met each other, the people that lived back in Isaiah's day were dead back when the New Testament was being penned. Yet they all say the same thing. God has preserved his word. You could trust your Bible. A couple other things about Bibles, and then I'm going to go into uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Um, today we have what was called either a formal equivalent or a dynamic equivalent. There's a plethora of Bibles out there today. Which one is good, Pastor Jack? Which one is accurate? Which one can we trust? This, that, and the other. So your formal equivalents are essentially... Uh, and uh, you can put up slide one, Cheryl, of uh, 2 Timothy, if you have it there. Um, formal equivalents are essentially a word-for-word -word translation from the ancient language. Go to the next slide. Go one more. Yeah, okay. So here, the top parts you can see are your Greek, okay? And I put the English translation underneath it. You can leave that up for a minute. This is basically from the ESV or the NASB. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, and the ESV are essentially a word-for-word -word translation from the original languages. They're called a formal. Your King James Bible, 
Your New King James are formal equivalent scriptures, or essentially word for word. Okay? Dynamic equivalence would be kind of like your New Living Translation, which is more of a thought-for-thought thought or paragraphical form, giving you the main idea of what's there. Uh, it's still a very accurate translation, but it's a little different. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I wanted to cover that because I wanted to take you from what you saw, which is these manuscripts that have been found, and of course it would take forever to show you all 5,800 of what they have. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, I had the privilege of actually laying my own naked eyes on them when they were in Philadelphia. It was quite a breathtaking moment to see the documents that were penned long before the birth of Christ still being uh, cataloged and shown today. Uh, very encouraging to see that. So, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, how's the Bible useful for us? How does it benefit us? You know, we struggle to get people to read their Bible and then they wonder why they don't have a lot of wisdom to make good decisions. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture, and you can put out the Greek slide, Cheryl. Put out the next slide, you can go. So you have there all scripture, and I, forgive me for walking off the camera a little bit. So you have pasagrafe, all or every portion of scripture, and here you have two Greek words, theopneustos is inspired or breathed out by God. It's profitable for training, or actually the word nostoskalane, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. Now that word training there is where, the, the, the root part of that word is where we have children being educated. Pedia, training, you're teaching, raising, teaching people up, raising up, in what? In righteousness, that adequate or the adequate, the man of God, is equipped for every good work. So, just to break that down a little bit, you have that word scripture, grafe. Basically where we get the sacred documents or writing, something that's written. All 66 canonical books of your Bible are God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. Every one of them, from the very first letter pen to the end. All scripture is theopneustus. It's breathed out by God. Literally, theopneustus, theos is God. Neustus, or from the root pneuma, breath, wind. We use that to identify the Holy Spirit. Breathed out by God. So what do we learn? God literally breathed out what he wanted said into the hearts and minds of the human writers that he chose to pen the documents that we have. Notice the text is clear that God's word is not inspired by men. It's inspired or breathed out by God himself. Okay? Also notice that the scriptures that are inspired, as the text clearly states, not the human writers that God used. The text is inspired. Uh, Jeremiah, next slide. Jeremiah 1.9, <clears throat> Old Testament. Then Yahweh stretched out his hand. He touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I put my words into your mouth. So it's important for us to understand that the scriptures that you hold in your hand, if you have your Bible, are from God. They are about God. They are about how God has revealed himself to sinful, fallen men. And throughout all of the scripture, God is revealing his truth to us. He's revealing his character to us. 
And he's revealing to us his divine plan as to how he redeems man. God's word is revealed to all of mankind on earth. How about Peter? 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Peter, know this first of all. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will, as we just learned, but men moved by or carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we see that word matters there, matters of one's interpretation. The word matter in the Greek is actually the word genome. It means to originate or to come into being. And he follows up with the word interpretation, right? And epi- that, that is a very interesting word. The word is epileusis. It's actually, again, two Greek words. Epi, which means fitting. And the bottom part, lucis, is where we get our word loose from. Uh, properly unloosing, unpacking. So we're building on a personal or we're building on a hermeneutical principle here. I like how John MacArthur spells this out. I don't know if that's up there. No scripture is the result of any human being privately untying and loosening the truth. A lot of churches today want to untie the truth or loose the truth. Peter's point here is not so much about how to interpret the word, but rather how scripture originated and what the source of that scripture was. You see, church, I believe Peter wants us to understand that no part of our Bible originated or came into being by man's thoughts or wills. Now, we're talking about the true 66 canonical books of Scripture. We're not talking about the Book of Mormon or the New World Translation. We're talking about the actual Scriptures. Okay, man is not the origin of Scripture. Look how Peter finishes the verse. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter tells us how we receive the scriptures. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's interesting, the word moved there in the Greek is what we basically call a present passive participle. What does that mean? It's a, the idea there is of a continuous action or this uh, continually, these men were continually being carried along by the Holy Spirit as they penned what Holy Spirit wanted them to put into Scripture. More of John MacArthur. Next slide. For Peter, and this is some of this is our church, for those that attend our church, about a month and a half ago I taught on this. John MacArthur says, For Peter, it was as if the writer of Scripture raised her spiritual sails and allowed the Holy Spirit to fill them with his powerful breath of revelation as they penned his divine words. So, <clears throat> here's another interesting point. The men that God chose as his writing instruments, wrote what God wanted said, not what they wanted said. That's very important. God used, he used their personalities, he used their backgrounds, he used their vernacular or vocabulary and style of writing of that day to bring forth what he wanted penned in the scriptures. Going back to 2 Timothy, and you can go to the next slide, Paul says, profitable for teaching. 
where profitable in the Greek has the idea of something that is useful, productive, and beneficial. Paul wants you and I to understand that the scriptures are fully capable of meeting the spiritual needs of the people of God. Just a couple of the <clears throat> verbs there. Teaching. Some words use the word doctrine. That's the word didaskaleia. The idea here for teaching has the idea of divine instruction that is given to the believers from God. Next slide, Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, our learning, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we may not vote. Did you know that the scriptures are there to also encourage you? They're there to encourage you. Very important. And I try to tell people, when you are reading God's word, make no mistake, God is speaking to you as if he was sitting in that chair right now. Right. Paul didn't lie when he wrote Romans 15.4. So it should be clear to all of us that we have the responsibility to study the scriptures. We have the responsibility to meditate on them. And we really have the responsibility to take what is taught in the scriptures and to put that into practice in our own everyday lives. <clears throat> I believe that God does, in fact, guide his people to do what brings pleasure to him, but he does it through his word. And the Holy Spirit, as I've said a million times before, never works independently from the word. God has given us his word, the scriptures for learning. And as we've seen, he's preserved that throughout all of history. The Bible gives us instruction on how you and I are to live our lives. And through the word of God, through the scriptures, we develop skills, knowledge, and insight. Then he uses the word reproof, a langlas. This word reproof means to rebuke in order to convict a person of misbehavior or false doctrine. The whole idea of reproofing is the idea, church, of forcing back. Literally, the thrust in the Greek is this forcing back. So what does this mean? The truth of God's word, if you are a student of scripture and you're studying it the way you're supposed to be studying it, it exposes falsehood. It exposes sin. It exposes ungodly behavior. Church, God will reprimand. God will discipline his people when they turn away from him. So if we are daily applying God's word to our lives, we have the discernment to see when we're getting off track. Right. And it warns us when we go in the wrong direction. Absolutely. You see, church, God's word forces you and I back to face the very truth about ourselves. Yes. And if you're in the word of God, it will do that. Sadly, we all know there are times when we all have chosen to ignore God's word because, let's face it, <clears throat> we enjoy our sin far too much, don't we? But for the true follower of Christ, the true Christian, he or she eventually comes to recognize that their life is for pleasing God. 
to bring glory and honor to God. And then we repent, we metanoia, we repent, and we turn back to him. And Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, <clears throat> powerful scripture. For the word of God, notice, is living. It's not a dead coffee table book. It's living. It's active. It's not dormant. It's not dull. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of our soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts, the lagasmas, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God is living. Zoe, living. It's a living word. It's not a magazine. It's God's word. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Just because we sin in secret and we have our secret sins doesn't mean they're secret or God's got cataracts. He sees it. He sees it. Believe me, he sees it. Well, I know you're all sanctified, but for me, he sees it. You know. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Can you imagine his big eyes up there? What are you doing now? Knock it off. And uh, when I, I taught on this about uh, six weeks ago, <clears throat> on this verse, that word open. <clears throat> it's amazing how <clears throat> our English doesn't always do justice to the original Greek. That that word open, is, is, it, is, it does mean open, but, but there's so much more that the people back in, in uh, Paul's day would have understood what that word mean. The Greek word is trochlidzo. So when Paul used that word, they had much more of a meaning than just like me, I'm opening up a door or opening up a cabinet. Much more a deeper meaning when we're looking at the word in the context of how it's used in the text. Very important. Why is that important? Well, this word trochlidzo, or our English word open, had really multiple uses back in Paul's day. The first was used of a wrestler that would take his opponent by the throat. In this position, both fighters were prosopon, prosopon. They were face to face. They were face to face. They couldn't turn left or right. They had to see each other face to face. The second use was used in a court of law under the trial proceedings. A very sharp dagger, if you guys remember from six weeks ago when I taught on this, very sharp dagger was tied to the neck of the accuser, the accused person, placed just under the chin here. And the sharp point of the dagger was right literally just about touching there. Why was this done? Church, this was done so he couldn't bow his head down or he could not look away from the court, but he would have to literally face the court. And if you're not washed in the blood of Christ, you will face the court of Christ on Judgment Day. The great white throne judgment. That's scary. Why? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we will all have to give an account of the deeds we did in the body when we are on earth, whether good or bad. Both meanings conveyed for this word open back in Paul's day, this face-to-face -face situation. How do we apply this? 
when a person comes under the watchful scrutiny of the word of God, he or she will unavoidably be face to face with the perfect truth about God himself. So when you're reading your Bible, you are face to face, unavoidably face to face with the perfect truth of God and himself, his word. That's why it's so important for people to open up their Bibles and stop making excuses where they can't give God a few minutes a day to let him speak to you because the way he speaks to you is through his word. And then Paul says correcting. Well, this word correcting also has the idea of this. Not just you were wrong, I'm going to correct you. The idea of correcting here, epinethosis, has the idea of restoring something to its original and proper condition. So when you're seeing correcting, you're in here, you're restoring something to its proper or original condition. In, in secular Greek, back in Paul's day when this was written, the idea was like setting upright an object that fell on the floor or helping somebody back on their feet who's fallen. So they're back standing again. What does correction do? Have we ever thought about this? It, it changes something from being wrong to being right. It, it makes us conform to the proper standard. See, God doesn't just scold us when we sin. He offers us the correction so that we do not repeat the same mistake over and over again. And if people aren't in the Word of God and applying it, they're recycling the same sin over and over and over. That's one place where you don't need to do recycling. Leave the trash and the recycling stuff out the door. He puts our lives back on the right course. God's word puts us back on the right path, guiding each of us toward a healthier, more intimate relationship with him. And that's what he wants for us. And then the word training. And again, as I said earlier at the beginning, the, the root Greek of this has the idea of, you know, tutoring kids, raising and giving instruction and building up children. You know, sometimes kids need a little help in the subject. So most of us who are parents will want to find a tutor to give them the help they need to be able to do well. You see, God's word guides us. It gives us the help and instruction that we also need to prepare you and I to live a life that is glorifying God and pleasing to him. It trains us. It, it tutors us so we can live a life that conforms to God's standards and not the world's. And then Paul wraps this all up so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Adequate. Artias in the Greek. What does he mean? Paul, what did you mean when you said adequate? He means that somebody that will be capable and proficient in whatever he or she is called to do for God. He wants to equip you so that you are capable and proficient of using the gifts that he's bestowed upon you to serve him. Equipped. The word equip, exartizo, means to finish out or accomplish. When a believer is fully equipped and capable, 
he or she can do something really important, which is how Christianity spread. He can now equip others who are under their care and disciple them to do the same thing. See, and the benefit of discipleship is when you're discipling somebody else, you're forced to be in the Word so God can be speaking into your life so that you can live in such a way that you can teach the people what God wants. Their lives reveal and affirm the power of God to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then equip them for righteous living and faithful service to the Lord. John, back in 1 John 5.13, I think that's up there. <clears throat> I have graphe to you who believe. Pistisamon. Believe. What does that mean? To put your trust in, adhere to, and rely on the name of the Son of God. Paul says, I wrote this to you who believe. You guys who are followers of Christ, you guys who have trusted in, you're adhering to, and relying on the Son of God so that you can know, you can be sure of and understand that you presently now have everlasting life. So placing our faith and trust in Christ is the only way we are saved. There is no other way. So let me close. We need to come to the place in our lives where we clearly see our unworthiness, our sinfulness, and we must come to understand that we can do nothing on our own to save ourselves. There's no act where you and I can make ourselves right with God on our own. God the Father has dealt with our sin problem, and he did it through the perfect work of his son, Jesus Christ. So life is found only in Christ. Remember, he is a source and author of life. So, developing an intimate relationship with Christ where we can honor him and live right for him can only be found when we apply his word to our life. We need, we need... You're listening. If you're alive and you're listening on Facebook right now, you need to open your Bible and be in the Word of God. In this day and age where there's not a lot of time left, you need to be in the Word of God. And when you're not in the Word of God, you are stealing and robbing from yourself the blessing of having the very God that knit you in your mother's womb speak into your life. You're stealing from yourself. So John is passionately telling us that we can know and we can be assured that we have eternal life. So let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for preserving your word. We thank you that your word gives life. We thank, we're thankful, Lord, that we still have not just your word, but we have other things that you gave us. You gave us these archaeological findings, Lord, the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these 5,800 manuscripts that are still in existence today, dating back to 100 years after your death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, we, Lord, help us to be faithful to take your word and speak it into the lives of people you bring to us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.